Bergen County, New Jersey, has one of the USA's last blue laws, banning retailers from doing this. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about blue laws, about chuso, and about choice theory. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Get better clients. There, in three words, is the strategy of any freelancer who wants to do better work. Get better clients. You can't work more hours, but you can work for people who appreciate the work you want to do. They will push you harder. You will do better work. They will talk about you. You will get paid more. You will be more proud of what you produce. How to get better clients. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and we have built a workshop just for you. If you work for yourself, I really think you need to check it out. It's not a bunch of videos. It's a workshop. You will work with other freelancers, working your way forward to figure out how to do this work that matters. I hope you'll take a minute to check it out. Visit akimbo.com go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. For a really long time, hundreds of years, if you were in a small town in Italy and one o'clock in the afternoon rolled around, everything was chuso, closed. People were taking the pause, living a gentle life, staying home, maybe taking a nap, eating with their family, and then going back to reopen their store at three o'clock in the afternoon. And Paramus, New Jersey, home of Alex Trebek's famous Blue Laws, is the last county in New Jersey that enforces a suspension of shopping on Sundays. This is pretty amazing since Paramus, New Jersey is basically one giant shopping mall. Need a new stereo color TV CB? Call 645-1196 for the most ridiculous prices ever during Crazy Eddie's Christmas sale in August. In those villages in Italy, the rules stay the way the rules are until a chain store shows up until a big supermarket shows up and they don't close from one o'clock to three o'clock. Their thinking goes, the landlord's charging us rent 24 hours a day. We need to make an income 24 hours a day. Their thinking is we work for the shareholders, not the employees. Their thinking is there are people in this town who are tourists or who are at work and need to buy something. We will be open for them. And so we run headlong into this idea that capitalism is ultimately about markets, and markets are about choice. Henry Ford may or may not have said, you can have any color car you want, as long as it's black. But what we do know is that once other people, competitors, figured out how to make a car as inexpensively as Ford could, Henry Ford's opinion no longer mattered. If you want fins, here's a car with fins. If you want white wall tires, here's a car with white wall tires. The customer makes choices. And all of us live in a world where many markets are free. And we are spoiled by the presumption that free markets are the standard, that we have a choice, that the customer is king. And as a result, businesses have no choice but to offer choice, that it's really difficult to build a business at scale in a competitive market where you insist 
that things are done your way, not the way the customer wants. And so as we start to dissect how culture works, one of the things we need to do is realize that in an economy that's driven by a market, many people, investors and employees, will work to limit choice. That what people look for in an investment, for example, is a company that is approaching monopoly, the one and only, that because of structural mechanics or because of the way that they produce things, you don't really have a choice. We're certainly seeing this with shopping on Amazon, that bit by bit as Amazon has gained scale and they have been able to lower their prices at the very same time, they increase their efficiency in delivering goods, a lot of alternatives are going away. They're going away because you can get it faster and cheaper from Amazon. And the argument is that once Amazon has eliminated most of their competition, the simplest thing in the world for them to do will be to charge a little bit extra, will be to lower service just a little bit. Because both of those things in a market where customers don't have much choice will lead directly to profits to the bottom line. And patient investors will get what they've been waiting for, which is less choice. Because in many situations, choice is a race to the bottom, certainly when it comes to profit margin. And then what about the side effects when we start to give people choice? As adults, we like to think of choice as an unalloyed good thing, that choices, options, the ability to select what's good for us feels optimal. Because when people choose, they get what they want. Now, when a four-year-old speaks up and says, I would like the choice to stay up all night eating popcorn, we say to that four-year-old, not yet, you're not an adult. There are costs to choices, particularly if we're not aware of them and if we're four years old. But in community, in culture, in commerce, choices have side effects. So for example, when we give the consumer in that little town in Italy the choice to go shopping at 1 p.m., it has an impact on the life of the person who needs to be in that store because no longer are they at home for lunch with their family. The choice of the consumer who has the power, who has the money, undermines the choice of the employee to be able to spend time with their family over lunch because some businesses are open and that means if they're not open, they will suffer and not be able to pay their rent and eventually disappear. Amazon has grown by giving its customers an enormous range of choices. Amazon sells more books than any bookstore in the history of the world. Amazon has more than 400 kinds of Japanese pull saws to choose from. Amazon gives consumers a choice, but by doing so, they have put enormous pressure on retailers, local retailers, who offered something different to consumers. And many of them have gone out of business and many more will, thus decreasing the choices that are available in the long run. Or consider the options open to the person who wants to run a business. Should they be able to make the choice to have the table saws they use 
not have safety guards. Because by not installing safety guards in the short run, they can produce the items they make faster and thus cheaper and thus give consumers in the world more choices about what to buy for their money. And yet, once someone cuts off their finger with a table saw, they can't get it back no matter what. So when does the choice of the consumer or the choice of the owner interact with the life choices and future of the person who works in the factory? There is no right answer, and that is the point of this rant. The point of this rant is that we are always affecting some people's choices by giving other people choices. That when they put the blue laws in place in Paramus, New Jersey, and made it so that every single business in the county that sells a certain kind of item cannot be open, they gave the owners and employees of those businesses freedom to choose, to choose a way to spend their Sunday, the freedom to decide how to live a life that isn't always in the store. But they did that by taking away the freedom of the local shopper to go shopping on Sunday. And this has been litigated back and forth. It's been the subject of referendums. As a community, the referendums have always gone in favor of, let's close everything on Sunday. That's a choice. Now, it's been said that democracy is the single worst form of government, except for all of the alternatives. And one of the challenges of the choice that's driven by democracy is that it can easily outweigh the needs of a particular individual. And as our culture evolves and gives more and more people a platform and a way to speak up, on one hand, individuals are being more heard and their need for choices are being integrated into the range of things that are offered by society. But on the other hand, we're starting to feel the creaks around the edges because giving everyone a free choice all the time ignores the fact that choices have side effects, that if we're not careful, we will end up racing to the bottom, and that will take away other people's choices. So I have no answer for us. I'm just here to talk about the fact that we need to identify that choice theory is a real thing, that what we need to think about is who is going to get a choice as we build this enterprise of value? Who is going to get a choice when we build this internet tool? Who loses choices when it becomes a natural monopoly, when there is lock-in and people can't go find another social network? What happens when we add adversarial interoperability and give users the choices to take their data and their social graph and go somewhere else with it? Who wins and who loses? I think as we consider all of the opportunities that the internet is creating as it rewires our culture, we're going to have to consider also who gets to choose and who doesn't. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a Q&A, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. 
I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you, and I get far fewer questions than you might expect. If you've got a question and would like to give it a shot, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Here's one from Dave. Hi, Seth. My name is Dave. I'm a composer and a teacher. My question has to do with shiny objects. I have a lot of ideas all of the time. Some of these ideas are creative, others are more entrepreneurial. But how do I know when I'm on to a good idea? How do I know when I'm attracted to the object and not just attracted to the shiny? I think of the shiny as the end to be gained, the success, the riches that await, if you will, when really most of the time that's just scarcity. So how do I know when I find a good idea that's not driven by scarcity, that's not driven by the end result. Thanks very much for everything that you do. Much appreciated. Yeah, I hear you. This is a common problem. People with ideas tend to have ideas. There are a few people who have just one idea, but that's pretty rare. If you get in the habit of exploring the fringes, you will find ideas. And then the question comes up, what are they for? Is it like humming a song every day just to entertain yourself? If that's the case, hum away. Inventing ideas that you never ship is a fine pastime. But for many people, the purpose of an idea is to make a change happen. We do not make a change happen with an idea. The idea itself accomplishes very little. We make a change happen by implementing the idea, by shipping the idea, by refining it, by evolving it by bringing it to the right people, by exploiting the opportunity, by expending emotional labor, by experiencing failure, learning, and doing it again. And all of that can be exhausting and enervating. And much of it doesn't work. And it all takes time away from that thing we said we like doing, which is coming up with the ideas in the first place. So how to dig ourselves out of this paradox? Well, I have a very practical suggestion for you. And I've tried this with people who say they have too many ideas, and it tends to focus the mind. Today is Wednesday. Go ahead and give yourself five days. And five days from now, you need to have five ideas. Five of the ideas you've been carrying around, protecting, nurturing. Five ideas, one page per idea. That one page needs to explain What's the idea? Who's it for? What's it for? What's the change you seek to make? How are you going to bring it to market? Where is the leverage? A little bit of a roadmap about how to get from here to there. Write them all up, five of them. And then sit with a few trusted friends and say, here are the five. And force them to pick one. Have a vote. And whichever one they pick, 
you have to do. You have to. You have given agency to them. You must follow through. You set it up, they pick it. The reason this works is because you will approach that meeting five days from now differently, knowing that the only ideas you can bring to that meeting are ideas you're actually prepared to commit to, to do something about. That you don't have to have the meeting in five days. You can just act like it, and then when you realize you're not ready, you can cycle one or two more times. But then you got to have the meeting. Because the thing is, ideas in private are safe. Ideas in private are fun. Because we don't have to expose ourselves to the market. But if we're here to make a change happen, we have to commit. We have to pick an idea. We have to be able to say, here, I made this. Thank you for caring about the work. Thank you for shipping the work. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.